0: If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Again, as Austin, I said at the beginning, as well as, uh, again, hope you have a happy Father's Day, as Austin mentioned and as he prayed for, I know that can bring a bunch of different mixed emotions, whether that is a father who was not really a great father to you um, or uh, a father that is past and that brings a lot of emotion uh, as well with it. And so I pray that you would see that you have a heavenly Father, no matter what that looks like. Whether you have a great Father on this earth who's still with you, or has passed, or you had a very difficult, uh, painful childhood and experience as a Father, maybe abandoned as well, I pray that you would see that our God is a Father to the fatherless, that He loves us unconditionally uh, and perfectly. So, again, if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning, just the first six verses uh, today. I don't know if you've heard of Chris uh, Gardner or not, but Chris Gardner was born uh, in Louisiana. Chris had an extremely difficult, talking about childhood and fatherhood, he had a really difficult childhood marked by poverty, uh, domestic violence, uh, and really a broken home. And despite these adversities, he remained determined to create a better life for himself and his family. And so Chris Gardner's journey to success began when he decided to pursue a career in finance. And so sure enough, despite having no college degree or formal training, while working as a a medical supply salesman, he met a stockbroker who inspired him to become uh, a stockbroker himself. And sure enough, during this pursuit, though, Gardner found himself homeless with his young son living in shelters and even sleeping uh, in a public uh, restroom at a train station. You might be like, I don't know who Chris Gardner is, but that sounds a little familiar. And if it does sound familiar, um, it's the story of of the man that was became a movie that was critically acclaimed that Will Smith starred in, called The Pursuit of Happiness. If you remember, it was this picture of this man who was in homelessness and uh, all this challenging things. He he had worked hard, but yet here he is, and he talks. I even heard interviews by him where he talked about that low moment of of in a restroom is where he's sleeping in this train station with him and his son. It's really depicted in the movie as kind of this big, this big, powerful, very emotional moment. And there's something in the story like Chris's that really gravitates our hearts and it gets a hold of our heart because he's one who overcame these things and eventually became, started his own firm. <laughs> And became a a multi-millionaire through a lot of hard work, determination, even through the difficulties that he experienced in his past. And we love a story like that. I think all of us are kind of drawn to a a feel-good story of someone who comes from hardship or from a low spot and, and endured and stuck through it and worked really hard. A lot of us, most people, we admire that about that, about people. In America, that's what we look for. We're looking for people who've, who've worked hard, that things weren't just handed to them, that they worked hard for those things, and we admire those traits about people. I think that's something that we're drawn to. That's why there was a movie that was millions and millions of people watched and consumed content on, because it's a, a feel-good story. And we love to see these kind of things. And, and, the, and the thought of someone coming from humble means and working hard to get out, is, it really kind of overwhelms us. You know, we see this with athletes all the time. You know, you hear the stories of an athlete, a basketball player, a football player who who came from just a lot of brokenness, fatherless home uh, or just a lot of gang violence, different things that he's surrounded in. And it was like his only way out of that was thinking that if I can just get on a basketball court or if I can get on a football field and work really hard, then I can get out of this. And we oftentimes hear those stories from professional athletes where they came from nothing and now all of a sudden have tons of money but also fame and recognition. I think we do these things and so I think that is what makes Mark chapter 6 so fascinating to me. Mark chapter 6 we think of Jesus. Jesus comes from humble means, the humblest of humble ways. We think of here's the god of all things, the creator of heaven and earth. That as we looked at Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19 last week, as we did that in Scripture reading together, <clears throat> to think that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, that all of creation shouts His praise, that this God condescended to earth, humbled Himself, born of a virgin, born in humble means, born in a little town called Bethlehem, Born where there was no room and an inn for them and his family. And so we look at that and we're like, oh, that's, that's really remarkable that Je- Jesus' humility and that he came from nothing. And then now, as we've been reading, when we're reading in Mark chapters 1 through 5, all we see are crowds blown away by him. They're, the crowds are gathering. Fame is going everywhere. People are amazed and they're astonished at his powerful teaching. They're astonished at his, the, the authority and the power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, as we just looked at last week with Jairus' daughter. We could be blown away by these things, and the crowds were blown away by these things, and they're, they're, they're coming out from everywhere, from the woodwork. People are bringing, and we saw last week this extraordinary faith. So why is it that when Jesus goes to his own town, he's rejected? When I first got into ministry, I um, served in a little town called Elberton, Georgia. Um, If I said that anywhere outside of Atlanta, people would have no idea what Elberton, Georgia is. Uh, Considered the granite capital of the world. (laughs) Uh, And and so, I don't know if that is a claim to fame on their own part or not because literally had picnic tables of granite. I mean, literally, you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you see a fenced yard and that fenced yard is granite. (laughs) Like, literally, they are like, making granite fences. Um, they have so much granite there, and that was the main business there. But it was really this small little town. It was a country town, <clears throat> and, but that was their main business. And, but most of the people, when the students would talk about it, they would be like, when I was did student, student ministry there, these students would talk about, can't wait to get out of here, like, to get away from this small town. What's funny is to look. I'm friends with many of them, and this has been 15 years now, probably for some of them, uh, that they've been that I was their youth pastor, and to see many of them still there or moving back to this little old town. There's something about sweet home, you know, like about going back home and going back to your roots or where you're from, and there's something about that. There was a student uh, in our in our student ministry. He was. He was hit or miss a little bit. He loved fishing, so he was out fishing oftentimes. Uh, but he was there some, and his name was Clay Page. And so probably not, doesn't ring a bell for any of you, but if you watch American Idol, um, Clay Page was from this small little town, but he had this beautiful country voice. Uh, you can Google him and listen to him later. He has an amazing voice. Uh, but he, Clay Page, um, was in our little youth group. He was like a little eighth grade boy, you know, squeaky voice at the time probably and all those kind of things but made it all the way to the top 40 in, Americans, in American, uh, American Idol. And when he goes home, everyone's thrilled. To, like, I mean, like, if he's going to fill a concert, it's when he comes back home because everybody knows him. They're like, that's Clay Page. we got to come see him. This is amazing. And I think of like the hometown hero, right? I think that is what's so interesting about this story is Jesus should be the hometown hero. The hero of all heroes is Jesus. The crowds are amazed at him, but when he comes home, he doesn't really get a warm welcome. <laughs> he doesn't actually get a warm welcome at all. He gets a, a brutal dismissal. And I think that is so much for us to learn from these just six verses this morning about some dangers that I want us to see, because here we're looking at the re- how the rejected Jesus, that Jesus is fully and utterly rejected by his own people. But I think there's two dangers that I want us to pick up from this morning from the people of Nazareth. And so if you have a Bible, I want us to just walk through this short little story that we get in the book of Mark. And what we're going to see is as Jesus is rejected by his own people, I think there's two dangers that we see. There's one danger that we're going to look at, of the danger of not recognizing Jesus' true identity... And the other danger that we're going to look at this morning is the danger of overfamiliarity with Jesus. And I believe both of those things were true of the people of Nazareth, but are also true of people still today. And so I want us to look at this passage. So if you have a Bible, Mark chapter six, starting in uh, verse one, tells us now he's just healed. Two incredible healings that we just looked at last week, and now here he is in the next chapter as Mark's continuing his story of Jesus' life. He says, he went away, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. Here he comes. There should be like a celebration, right? Jesus is coming home. Here's the the, the promised one. Here's the Messiah. Here's this great one who's doing all these things. He's going to come home to our town. We can't wait. Let's get the parade. Let's get the celebrations out. He shows up, and his disciples came with him, and on the Sabbath... Verse 2, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? Look at these questions they asked. They asked these three questions here Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? You see, this is, this is why, this is the why behind the story, because you would think if Jesus shows up, He's the King of kings, He's the Lord of lords, He's the promised one, but even if you just took His humanity and just said on face value what He was doing, you would think there would be a gathering quickly coming to be like, is He going to heal another person? Maybe He should heal my friend. I know a friend who has a disease. I should take him to Jesus. He'll heal him, and you would think that's what would go on with these people because they're hearing all the reports and the stories. And so Jesus shows up, and he speaks in the synagogue, and they're amazed. They're, the word here given in the ESV, it says, astonished. They're astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? But I want you to see that in, this, in, the book of, in the book of Mark, in Mark's gospel, he's asked several of these questions along the way. If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 27, after casting out a demon, the people who saw it asked this question. They said, what is this? They're like, what is this? He cast out a demon. What is this? He can cast out demons and they obey Him? They're going like, they're trying to figure out who this Jesus is. They're saying, and they're asking this question, what is this? In Mark chapter 4, in the calming of the storm, the disciples even ask another question. They say, who then is this, that the wind and the waves obey Him, the sea? Nature obeys his voice? Who is this? And now here in our passage this morning, among his own hometown, they're asking this question. Where did this man get these things? Where's this power come from? How does he have these things? How does he have this ability to communicate? How does he have this power to heal people of their diseases? Where are these things coming from? You see, this speaks to a question that many are asking and many have asked for centuries. And so many are willing to accept the historical Jesus of Nazareth, that there was a man named Jesus and he was a, a good man and he was this nice, kind, gentle, loving, very compassionate. Maybe he even had some spiritual power to heal people of diseases. Maybe, that, maybe even that was the case. But if nothing else, at least he was this really, really good man who died for a cause that he believed in. Tragic story, tragic end. Many people believe in this version of the historical Jesus, but oftentimes they don't, they only see a carpenter. They only see what the disciples see. And I want you to see that this, this first point, this that the danger of not recognizing Jesus' true identity is this is the people in Nazareth understood what Jesus was claiming to be. You see, they understood this about him. They understood what Jesus was saying about himself and who he was claiming to be. They just couldn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4, We don't know if this is the exact same account or not. Um, it doesn't tell us if this is the exact same account. Some believe it is. Some believe maybe this is another different, a different time that he came to Nazareth. But either way, um, we see the same response, uh, just more detail in Luke chapter 4. But in Luke chapter 4, so what caused this crowd to go, what, has, what is up with this guy? This, he can't be who he's claiming to be. Well, that means, well, what was he claiming to be? And I want you to look at what he was claiming to be through what he read in that synagogue. It says in verse 16 in Luke chapter 4, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. In Mark's account, if these are the same accounts, Mark doesn't tell us what he read. Luke does give us a clue into what is read that day. And so it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Here's what he read in front of the congregation in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor so he read a very familiar, a familiar uh, prophecy from Isaiah to the crowd. The crowd would have known this prophecy for sure. And so he rolls it up, it tells us in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the tenant and sat down. It's kind of like a, a little bit of a mic drop moment. It's like, all right, I've read this prophecy. Let me just give the scroll back and I'll just sit down. Let it be. And the eyes of all in the synagogue, remember this is in his hometown, Nazareth. His hometown was only about 500 people, small little town they were fixed on him and he began to say to them after he sat down he said today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and notice what it says and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious word that were coming from his mouth and they said is not this joseph's son and he said to them, "'Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb.'" So Jesus continues to speak. He didn't just leave God's Word to, by itself here in because <clears throat> He is the Word become flesh. And he said to them, "'Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, "'Physician, heal yourself. "'What we have heard you do at, did at Capernaum, "'do here in your hometown as well.'" And he said, "'Truly I say to you, "'No prophet is acceptable in his own hometown.'" But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And I want you to hear what he's saying here. But in truth, there were many widows in in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. What he's saying is there was all kinds of widows, and I'm sure there were widows in in Israel among their own people. But Elijah, God didn't send Elijah to a woman of their own people. He sent him to the outsider. He sent him outside to Sidon. And that's the one he goes to. And there were many lepers, he says in verse 27, in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. I mean, the Syrian, a general, a ruler. When they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff but it wasn't Jesus time yet in verse 30 but passing through their midst he went away you see these people understood what Jesus was claiming Jesus was making a bold claim he was saying I am the promised one. I am. This passage of Scripture, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news, they knew this was a prophecy about the Messiah. They knew this was a prophecy of the Son of David who was going to come to restore them, that uh, their view of restoration, and He's going to redeem them and free them from the oppression, from all their oppressors, and all those who have brought chaos and dominion over them. They're going to be set free from this. And, and this Jesus, the carpenter's Son is the one who is going to be the Messiah. You're claiming to be God, Jesus. There is no way. You can't be Jesus. You're, you can't be God. So what do they do? They try to kill him. They try to say, you're blaspheming, and blasphemy deserves a stoning or a tossing over on this cliff. We're, getting, we're ending you today. This is his hometown, why would they be this way? You see, the reason is because they don't recognize Jesus' true identity. And I want you to see this. This is so important. This is a danger because many, many people today, same thing. They like the thoughts about Jesus. We love to sing about his goodness. We're going to end today's service with the goodness of Jesus, that he is good, that he is kind, that he's gracious. He's mercifully he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for generation to generation to generation. But we don't recognize, because you have to understand, what does it mean? If, if Jesus is in fact God, what does that mean for me and for you? Why is that a big deal? Why couldn't Jesus just be a good moral teacher? Let's let someone who's a lot smarter than me say, <laughs> explain this. It's probably a quote that you've heard. C.S. Lewis famously said these, and I'm not just going to give you the liar, lunatic Lord, statement. I want to give you the broader statement that he says. He says, This I'm trying here to prevent anyone f- saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, C.S. Lewis is saying. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about His being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End the quote from C.S. Lewis. What he's saying is this. You can't just be like, oh, he's a great teacher. What happens is, if you're trying that, you don't end up like the people of Nazareth do. The, the, The Nazarenes are saying, he's claiming to be God. He's not just a great teacher. No, no. He's he's claiming to be more than just a good teacher. He's claiming way more than that. He's claiming to be the anointed one. He's claiming to be Messiah. He's claiming to be God himself. And this man can't be that. There is no way is what they believe. Look at it. Look what they say. Is not this the carpenter? Verse 3 of chapter 6. Notice the words they use. "Is Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary? Now, there's a, a few views on this. I think I take it, I take it more of a, of a, a slight statement. Um, in that culture, you would have always been referred to as the son of Joseph. This is Jesus, son of Joseph, Bar-Joseph. Would have, you would have been known by who your father is. Your name would have been given by your father. But here, they say the son of Mary. Why would they say that? I've been, I've been really pondering on this this week as well. You know, I think... The church, and obviously Roman Catholicism specifically, uh, very much esteem Mary. And, I, and, and to some degree, rightfully so. I mean, here's, I mean, she's the mother of Jesus. This is a big deal. Her song is, is wonderful as you read the Gospels and you see the humility on her part. But among the people of Nazareth, I don't think she would have been esteemed very much. She actually would have been scandalized. They would have assumed she had Jesus illegitimately or she had Jesus outside of marriage and all of those things that would have happened. Naturally, those those rumors and and things would have gone on with Joseph and Joseph choosing not to divorce her quietly as he was given word of the Lord in his dream about who Jesus actually was, that that, that this was of the Holy Spirit, that it was going to be a virgin giving birth, not another man has cheated on his betrothed. You see, there would have probably been scandal, and so sure enough, here, they're saying, isn't this just a carpenter? Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Notice the next phrase, tragedy, and they took offense at him. This word is the Greek word that we get scandalized or scandal from, this took offense to. They were scandalized by Jesus. They were not just like it's, like, it's like being overly embarrassed by someone that you don't even want to be associated with them. They embarrass you so much and they, they are not for you or they come across and you're like, I don't want to be associated with him. They took offense to Jesus. Why? Because they didn't recognize Jesus' true identity. The reason though, why, is, why do you think they did not recognize Jesus' true identity? He's made claims. He's fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. He is healing people of diseases. They're assuming, and if you remember, if we read it earlier in Mark and studied it earlier, I mean, they at one point even thinking and wondering, is he lost his mind? Is he crazy? They, remember, they, they went, his own family went to try to bring him out and bring him home. Like, stop, you're embarrassing the family kind of thing. And now here... They're taking offense at Him. Why? I believe it's our second danger this morning, and I think that's the danger of over-familiarity with Jesus. It's an over-familiarity with Jesus. You might be saying, like, what do you you mean by that? Well, I want you to see. They recognize Jesus for His humanity. They're like, we grew up with Him. It's Jesus, right? I mean, it's, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the the carpenter's son, he's the one who grew up in Joseph's home. We saw him when he was building beams and helping with this building houses or other things, when he was woodworking with his, with his father and growing up and all those things. They're, they're like, no, 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 that's, that's Mary's son. Remember the, the little bit of a scandal there? Like, like it can't be he can't be God. That's Jesus. They were overly familiar with him. Have you ever you've heard that phrase, right? Like, familiar breeds contempt over-familiarity. When you think with, you get to know someone, like the thought would be like, when you get to know someone, you become, you become, you like them more and more and more and more. But really, what that phrase comes from is what happens oftentimes, though, is sadly, is you get to know someone, you get to see the warts, you see the ugliness, you see that they're not so perfect that you thought they were, and you're wondering like, man, they're not as good as they thought, we thought they were. You would think, though, again, Jesus was perfect Sinless, You would think knowing, like watching him. I mean, he was unique, and yeah, maybe he was unique, but surely he can't be God. No one can be God. No human can be God. This is impossible. And you see they're unfamiliar, or they're, they're being overly familiar with who Jesus is, led to them being scandalized by him, and leads them to make a really, really what is, which is really fascinating is this. Look at what it says. They took offense of him, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not um, without honor. Or, or, yeah, is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own hometown. And sadly, look what it leads to in verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. I mean, he couldn't even go about what he normally would do, and people, and why couldn't he? Is that is that mean that Faith is dependent on Jesus' power, like, that, like faith fuels it. I'm totally stealing this from one of the commentators that I read from, but I thought it was, it was so appropriate. It's like, because I, I love the movie Elf. I know it's not Christmas season at all, but Elf's pretty funny, you know, watch him stretch up as he goes up the escalator. Tried that a few times in the escalators in the day, um, and all those things. But in Elf, you remember, right, like, they're like... They can't get Santa's sleigh to go. It's like it's stuck. We need to get that sleigh going. What does it need? It needs more Christmas cheer. We've got to get everyone to be excited about Christmas and believe in all these things. So that will get Santa's sleigh to go. And I think, as his commentator was saying, he was saying exactly that's what we're we kind of trying to do here with Jesus. That, that we've got to just summon enough faith and that will unleash God's power. That we, if we just believe more, or if we have more faith, and, and, and then that unleashes God's power. God is not dependent. His power is not dependent on me and you. There is, there's a multitude of occasions, not a multitude, but there's several occasions in the Gospels of Jesus healing apart from someone's even belief. There's others, the paralytic, with his hand, the withered hand, who is healed. God chose to heal him. He showed grace to him, showed his mercy and his kindness. It wasn't because he believed in him, he showed grace to Him. So, it's not like God's, God is, Jesus is hindered here. How, then how would Jesus' ministry be hindered here? Well, think about it. If you don't believe what's not happening, because in all the other towns, word's getting out. Guess what they're doing? They're finding their friends who are sick They're they're going to the hospitals, they're going to find people, and they're like, hey, this Jesus is a miracle worker. He will heal you. Let me bring, as a friend, I'm going to bring you to him. But their lack of belief in his hometown said, nah, I mean, he's not going to heal people. So guess what? They don't bring people to him. You see, their unbelief led to inaction on God's part. Not less power. God just wasn't welcome here what we're going to see is the mission of the disciples sent next week and how there's some towns they go into people reject them they're to dust their feet off and leave it's a sign of judgment against those people you see they marveling at his teaching at the beginning but yet this familiarity to him has overtaken them to where they just cannot believe what does that look like for us today What is over-familiarity with the things of Jesus? Maybe for some, it's you grew up in the South. You grew up in the Bible Belt. You grew up hearing about the things of Jesus your whole life. You heard it from, from when you were in nursery being held as a little baby. And mom or dad or a nursery worker is, is singing, uh, singing Christian songs to you and singing worship songs to you, reading scripture to you, explaining things. And you're hearing these things about Jesus. And one day you profess faith in Jesus and you kind of go about your life and then the, the middle school years and the high school years and then you get a little bit older. And these things that were so familiar to you, but kind of become stale. The luster of the gospel The beauty of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf loses its luster in your heart. You become that old, old story, as the hymn goes, becomes a little stale to you. That old story becomes an old story. To you And all of a sudden, the things of God aren't quite that important to you anymore, because because of your familiarity, you know the things of Jesus and you know the things of God. But yet, somehow, that has led your heart to become a little apathetic, a little cold, a little stale. And all of a sudden, the things of God just—they don't grab your heart. When you hear stories like this, and you—it doesn't move you to say, "Man." Is there something in me? Is there unbelief in my heart? Is there something in my life that, sh- that needs to be changed? Am I, am I quick to pay attention to the things of God? Has, have I we do this, right? We're warned against it, quench the spirit of God. Maybe there's a certain sin that you've struggled with. Maybe, maybe it's a, lots of different sins. And you've, you've, you started fighting that sin, and you, and you, and you started out really strong, and you, you're trying to get victory over the sin, and you were really keen to it, and you're aware, to, aware about it. And you would repent, and you would turn, and you'd say, God, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me, wash me, purify me. And then all of a sudden, you're tempted again, and what do you do? You, this time, you're like, ah, oh, man, but maybe it took a, a week for you to really grab around to how what you've done, the consequence of your sin, or the, the, the choices that you've made. And all of a sudden, What happens? even though you know the truths of Scripture, you know the truth of who God is, but yet as time goes on, as you've become familiar with the things of God and the grace of God, maybe that you're like, well, I'm not... And then all of a sudden, maybe you think some really, really dangerous thoughts. Maybe you think this phrase. Many of us growing around the things of God think, I'm not that bad of a person. When we begin to think that, We are already lowering the cost of our salvation. Well, I mean, I'm not that bad. Maybe Jesus, when he's like washing people and forgiving them of their sins, I mean, like, yeah, he forgives me of my sins, but my sins, they're not that bad. It's so, so, so dangerous. When we let these kind of thoughts, the familiarity of the things of God, even your knowledge of Scripture, maybe you earnestly read Scripture for a long time growing up or different things, and you, so you know a good bit, it's a lot of knowledge maybe in your head about the things of God, and you know these things, and you're relying on what you knew about Him, but all of a sudden that staleness comes in, and you're like, all right, I need some, I need more, I need more spice, I need more excitement, and so you're looking for it and hoping for it, but this familiarity, what happens is we treat Jesus some people treat Him as a casual friend. They're like, oh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's my buddy. He's my friend. It's great. He is a friend. I mean, He's used that way, but He's also Lord and Savior. You see, if Jesus is, in fact, who He's claiming to be, that means you're not in charge of you anymore. That means... The world doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around Him. That means your day-to-day life all of a sudden is shifted from living for you and for yourself to now living for the Son. The world and your world begins to revolve around who Jesus is and what He says and what He does. And so we tune our hearts into Him. We we hone in our, word, our thoughts and our, our actions and our eyes and our motives and our hands and our feet. Everything about us is now changed because of who Jesus is. And that was the problem for the people of Nazareth. It can't be. We're unwilling to lay our knee down to this Jesus. He's just the carpenter's son. He's the son of Mary. I can't bow before him. I'm not going to bow before him. I'm not going to surrender to his teaching. I'm my own person. I'm my own I'm my own authority. I don't need the authority of Jesus, but that's exactly why they tried to kill him. And that's what led to his own death. You see, we if we're not careful, we can fall into this trap and this so familiar with the story of Jesus and who he is that it loses its luster in our hearts. This is why I preach the gospel. Not this. When I preach the gospel, I don't want you to think that I'm just preaching to maybe a random person who comes in who I'm hoping will hear it and believe it. No, I preach it to you and to me because I need the gospel every single day. I need God's grace, and I need the reminders of the gospel, and i got to preach that gospel to myself. I was with someone this week, and we were talking about Psalm 103, and it was reminding me, I'd I'd spoken on it a long time ago, and it reminded me of it, where where the psalmist David says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, and forget not all his benefits. What is he doing there? What is the psalmist saying when he's saying those things? He's talking not to you and to me. Yes, it's God's Word, so now it's for our benefit. But what was he saying when he was saying, bless the Lord, O my soul? Who was he talking to? He's talking to his soul. He's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself, saying, Bless David. Bless the Lord. Bless him, David. Bless his holy name. Don't forget, David, his benefits. Don't forget who he is and what he's done. Don't forget those things. But don't we forget... We're so forgetful of the goodness of God and the grace of God. We're forgetful of His call to, to fully deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and follow Him. And we just want to live our life. We don't want to take up a cross. We don't want to even thought of a cross, except on Sunday while we're singing about the cross. When it comes to us bearing the cross, no thanks. Deny myself? No, I want more. I want more things. We can become so familiar with the things of God that we can forget. And it's a danger that leads to unbelief. Eventually, unbelief, like what we're seeing with the people of Nazareth. I want you to see this. Notice, I want to end with this. Notice how it begins, chapter 6. I want to read it again. He went away from there and came to his hometown, verse 1. And the disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. They're marveling at his teaching. So this, this story begins with them marveling at the teachings of Jesus. The story begins with a people just amazed and blown away by Jesus' teaching. But only a few verses later in verse 6, look at who's marveling now in verse 6. And he, Jesus, marveled. Why is he marveling? Why is he astonished? Why is he, he amazed? It's because of their unbelief. And he went among, about among the villages teaching. There's only two times, this stood out to me this week as well, there's only two times Jesus was marveled, was amazed, was blown away, I guess you could say, by something. Two times that we see in the Gospels. One is the Roman centurion and his faith. He comes up to Jesus wanting his, uh, his servant to be healed. And uh, sure enough, Jesus heals, and he says, like, I believe that you could heal him right here and now. Like, we don't even need to go to see her. You can do it just with your word, he says. And sure enough, Jesus does, and he, Jesus, it says, he was marveling at this person's faith, and he actually told the people of Israel, there's not a person in all of Israel who has faith like this man. He was amazed by it, first one. The second time he's amazed is by unbelief. You think of that. They were astonished and marveling at His teaching, but yet here Jesus is looking at them and He's marveling at their unbelief. So, I want to ask you, where in your life is there maybe some unbelief? Because what does that look like? What does unbelief look like? Well, unbelief looks like when you know what God's Word says, but you don't do what it says, that is a picture of unbelief. I think of my kids, like if I said, do not run in the street… It is a danger to you. You you could get run over and killed, you know, all the warning signs you want to give to scare your kids from going in the road. And so, as the car's going by, if I'm yelling at him and, and then yet he goes into the road, what is he doing? He's not trusting that I know what's best for him. He's saying, I know what's best. I can control the situation. I'm... Dad, I'm old enough, I can look left, I can look right, I can see if there's cars going or not going, and then I can go in the road. Well, great, son, but I said, don't go in the road. You see what he's doing? He's trusting in, this is a hypothetical story, they're not in here to defend themselves, so uh, this hasn't happened at all recently, so (laughs) they'll be thankful to know that later, but what are they saying if they were to do that? They're saying, I trust in me not you. And that's what we do with our self-righteousness when we think we're pretty good. I can earn God's acceptance? No, you can't. You needed Jesus to take your place. These people needed to bow the knee to Jesus because they needed Jesus. They just didn't know it. They're they're too familiarity of Him and misunderstanding who He was claiming to be, or they knew who He was claiming to be, but saying, there's no way you could be that. They were missing it, and that led to unbelief. And unbelief looks like all kinds of things. It can be in the small things of life. It can be in the tough season when anxiety strikes you. What is that? That's an unbelief. It's a a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust. So what do we do through those seasons? How do we wade through the challenges? How can you and I wade through all the seasons of doubt and fears? What do we do? We run to the grace of God. We seek Him, and we pray a prayer just like was prayed in, um, in, the, in the Gospels. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You see, you ask God for grace to give you the faith to believe. You ask for His help. You say, Lord, I want to believe You. I think that is a genuine desire of my heart, but I need help to believe You. Give me, your, give me more confidence. Give me Your grace to see through what I can't see right now. Like the woman in, uh, who had the bleeding condition, she was persistent to say, I need to get to Jesus. He's the only hope. Until you see that Jesus is your only hope, you'll only live in your own power. And that's why I think this, my favorite verse, really, I think, I'm a pastor, so I say favorite verse all the time, and it's a different verse every time, but 2 Corinthians, um, when, I, when I think of 5.21, Says this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, these people of Nazareth, they were not righteous enough. They were never going to be righteous enough. I'm not righteous enough. I could not be good enough. That's why we needed Jesus. Jesus needed to condescend, to come humbly, born of a virgin, to live a sinless, perfect life, not just as a man, but as the God-man, the 100% God, 100% man. He comes and he lives and he identifies with us in our weakness. He experiences temptation. He experienced pain, suffering, hurt. He experienced abandonment. He experienced pain. He lost a a father on earth. He he can sympathize with you in your weaknesses. He lived this life, but he lived it perfectly without sin so that you could be made right with him. And that takes faith. That takes belief. But what saves you is the grace of God to lavish that on you. And he desires to do that. The question is, are you going to respond to him? appropriately? Or are you going to be like these people, his hometown, his own family, and Jesus look at you and marvel at your unbelief? May he be blown away by our faith in him, the living God. May that be true of each and every one of us, and not just today, but in each and every day, that we live a life marked by faith in this God not just a carpenter, but the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Let me pray. Father, uh, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this gift of grace to reveal more and more of Yourself to us. I thank You for Mark's approach, um, beginning to appreciate it more and more as I study it deeper and deeper. And so I thank You for his approach of saying, helping us see who is Jesus and what our response should be to Jesus. Father, I thank you so much for this story. It's a, it's a warning, really, to us. There's some dangers. And if we're not careful, our hearts can become so familiar with the things of Jesus, but yet miss you. Miss the true you, the true identity of who you are, that you are the Son of God. I thank you that you rose again, that you are you died in our place, that you bore our sin and clothe us in your perfection that came at great cost through your death on a cross. But I thank you that you have rose, you've risen again. Not a demigod, not not a spirit, but a living body, bodily resurrection, that we have hope because you are not dead. Father, help us to marvel and be amazed by these things and who you are, but let it lead us to faith and not unbelief like these people in Nazareth. Help us, Father. Help us to believe these things. Father, we, I'd say many in this room, believe, but in the areas where we're not believing, we ask what's already been asked in Scripture as well, help our unbelief. So help us, God, in these ways. Uh, Go before us in in our time this week. May we live a life of faith and repentance. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.